Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hello, Cardio Nerds. This is Amit Poyle. Welcome back to our Cardio Oncology series. Over the course of the series, we will be exploring multiple facets of this very important and flourishing field. The Cardio Nerds Cardio Oncology series aims to help us analyze the cardiovascular consequences of cancer and its treatment and how to best care for the growing population of cancer survivors. This would simply not have been possible without our series co-chairs, Dr. Dinu Balanescu, Internal Medicine Chief Resident at Beaumont Hospital in Royal Oak, Michigan, Dr. Giselle Suero, General Cardiology Fellow at MGH, and joining us for this episode today, Dr. Theodora Donison. Theo is currently a General Cardiology Fellow at the Mayo Clinic. She discovered cardio-oncology while doing research with Professor Cesar Iliescu at the MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. If this story sounds familiar, it's because she worked there together with Dinu. Theo's also also a graduate of the Cardiners Academy and currently serves as Chief for House Thomas. Welcome to the podcast, Teo. Thank you, Ahmed. Hi, everybody. Thank you for the kind introduction. It brings me great joy to introduce this episode of the Cardio Oncology series, in which we will be exploring the topic of radiation-associated cardiac disease with Dr. Eric Yang and Dr. Patrick Ascarate. Patrick completed his medical school training at the University of Miami and then went on to University of California, San Francisco for internal medicine residency and then UC San Diego for general cardiology fellowship. He is now returning home to Miami for his first job as a clinical cardiologist with a focus on imaging and cardio-oncology. He has been with us on CardioNerds in the past, including for a case of radiation-associated cardiac disease, and we're very excited to have him back. Hi, Tio. First off, thanks for the introduction and nice to meet you finally. Some of the listeners may remember from episode 169 on Cardio Nerds, we discussed a case involving a young man with radiation associated cardiac disease. However, in that episode, we really only scratched the surface of radiation associated cardiac disease. So today we'll be jumping right back in and exploring it in more detail. To help do this, we're being joined by Dr. Eric Yang. Dr. Yang is an associate clinical professor of medicine at UCLA and assistant program director for the Cardiology Fellowship Program. Since joining the faculty at UCLA, he's received multiple teaching and mentoring awards, and he is one of the most loved and respected physicians at UCLA. Dr. Yang officially established the UCLA Cardio-Oncology Program in 2016, which he still leads. The program was designated a gold-tier Cardio-Oncology Center of Excellence by the International Cardio-Oncology Society. Dr. Yang has been an avid supporter of CardioNerds, and we're absolutely thrilled to have him as a guest on today's episode. Thank you so much, Patrick and Tio and Amit. It's great to see you all again. The honor and privilege is mine to be a part of this amazing, rapidly spreading medical education platform that you have all been so amazing at bringing our trainees. I'm also so proud to have many of our Bruin Hearts fellows involved in the Cardio Nerds movement. And to be a part of this is just really a big honor for me. And I'm also excited for the group's interest in discussing many of the rapidly growing concepts and interest in cardio-oncology, which I'm biased, of course, but is really, truly, I think, one of the most dynamic and interesting and fascinating fields within cardiovascular disease. And we hope that this field will also yield some insights, not only into how cancer treatments and cancer biology affects cardiovascular disease, but how it hopefully will yield insights into how traditional cardiovascular disease develops and how we can treat it effectively. And really, the answer and the inspiration 
comes from all of you as trainees and young attendings. And to be a part of this is really just exciting to see. So thank you so much for having me. Oh, Dr. Yang, you're so kind. As uh, Patrick has mentioned earlier, you've always been a very avid supporter of uh, Cardio Nerds and you've always been um, by our side. Personally, know a lot of the fellows at UCLA who are involved in so many teaching activities. And I'm sure this is in part uh, because of how inspiring that academic environment is there. And surely this is all done under your guidance. So we're so happy to have you share that with us today. Thank you so much. As Patrick already mentioned, we're so excited to officially welcome you in the CardioNerds family, and we can't wait to start learning from you. I believe Patrick has a case for us to discuss. Is our patient roomed and ready to be seen? Certainly, Theo. Today, we'll be meeting Ms. Green. She's 40 years old and was recently diagnosed with left-sided breast cancer. She has plans to undergo a lumpectomy and radiation. Her father passed away at the age of 55 from a heart attack. So given her family history, her oncologist referred her to a cardiologist prior to starting radiation. She reports no cardiac symptoms, is relatively active, and jogs one to two miles three days a week. She also does yoga on the weekends. She recalls being told radiation has a risk of heart problems, but does not know what they are. In the exam room, her vitals are stable with a heart rate of 75 beats per minute and a blood pressure of 118 over 65 and a BMI of 21. Patrick, thank you for going over that. And luckily, thanks to you and your colleagues at UCSD, I remember from our prior case discussion that radiation can affect every tissue of the body, but specifically here, the heart. The cardiac side effects of radiation therapy can affect all five major cardiac structures, the pericardium, the myocardium, the conduction system, the valves, and the coronary arteries. Dr. Yang, would you like to discuss in a bit more detail about the myriad manifestations of radiation-associated cardiac disease? I mean, I'd be happy to, and I'm so happy you brought that up. So I view radiation-associated cardiac disease also as a continuum, and many people, in cardiologists, including you all as part of the panel here, know that there's always a historical component of medical treatments. Sometimes as a cardio-oncologist, it helps to be a little bit of a medical detective because the treatments and the associated cardiotoxicities really depend on also the era in which people were treated. Now, I'm going to maybe go a little ahead here, but a lot of us associate radiation-associated cardiac disease as with more historical treatments, which frankly had higher incidence of cardiotoxicity. And it also, it's important to understand that these historical associations or known instances with cardiotoxicities may not necessarily apply to Ms. Gray now in the quote-unquote modern era. But that being said, obviously we do know from tons and tons of institutional registry and retrospective data all over the world that there is a signal of increased cardiovascular disease. And Amit, you already outlined it that essentially radiation by its mechanisms can affect every part of the heart. And I would say that Starting from the most outer layer, the pericardium, that thankfully has become less of a known manifestation now, although it does rear its ugly head every so often. But back in the 1960s, when radiation treatments were frankly much more toxic, every treatment tends to be a lot more aggressive than they are now until we learned that peeling back can be just as good. Pericarditis was a very frequent known cardiotoxicity. And you can imagine for many of the cardiology fellows here training in the cath lab to avoid radiation exposure, this is really just a ton much more in excess of at least 40, 50 plus grays acute exposure. This was a much more long-term effects in the already a high mortality disease state. That is fallen by the wayside. Now, the other long-term effects like 
myocardial disease, valvular disease, and coronary arteries and conduction systems, it's sometimes hard to know what contributes to what. Myocardium we associate usually with cardiomyopathy long-term, and we do know that historically higher doses, again, in the range of 30-35 grays, which is the range in which many Hodgkin disease, gastric esophageal cancer, chest radiation doses were given back then, can cause long-term effects one to two decades out. And this is through mechanisms of endothelial dysfunction, microvascular ischemia, negative remodeling, cell apoptosis. And also, if you combine these treatments with other cardiotoxic therapies, such as anthracyclines and or anti-HER2 treatments, this could also correlate with an increased risk of cardiomyopathy. The conduction system is also another interesting long-term manifestation because, as you all know, with the elderly population, heart block and other long-term diseases can occur with fibrosis, the conduction disease. Now, with radiation, this can essentially speed up that process, and patients can usually present with conduction disease either concomitantly with other disease states or with cardiomyopathy or the other manifestations. Or they might be more likely to develop heart block if they are undergoing cardiac procedures such as a valvular intervention. However, the overall incidence is hard to really tie down, although radiation is associated with an increased incidence of that. What we do know a little bit more about is valvular disease, which has been more rigorously tracked in historical data in cardio-oncology. And again, we'll talk about the mechanisms later, but valvular disease in retrospective historic data has been shown to usually rear its head in historical radiation treatments around 15 years out. The whole study in JAMA in 2003 demonstrated that people started demonstrating signs of subclavian, carotid, or valve disease for those who received mantle radiation. And this is what has driven a lot of our consensus statements to really start finding out when the right time is to start screening for radiation-induced valvular disease. And obviously, this also comes with other problems such as coronary artery disease. And this is the one thing that I think a lot of our interventional cardiologists, as well as our cardiologists, are trying to find out who is at risk of premature atherosclerosis. And the classic finding of osteal disease, especially in historical radiation treatment fields where more anterior treatments were used without shielding, the classic finding of proximal osteal LAD or left main involvement or RC osteal disease was a known finding, especially in Hodgkin's lymphoma survivors. And that's the thing that's also important to understand. It doesn't have to be necessarily proximal. It can happen, especially at any age, depending on when they were treated. And that goes to the next teaching point that I want to bring up. Not only is the amount of radiation treatment that is received an important factor to consider, but also the age in which that happened. And that might also dictate the kind of pathophysiology that occurs with radiation heart disease. If you already have pre-existing disease going into radiation treatment, that essentially might age whatever you had before. Whereas if you're a younger individual and you don't have any pre-existing coronary disease, you might get a different flavor of radiation heart disease, such as fibrosis and other unusual manifestations. So that is basically an overall brief sort of summary of all the things that can occur with radiation treatment. But hopefully, as techniques have modernized and improved, we will be seeing this less often now. Gosh, thank you for that, Dr. Yang. This is a really helpful description of the what of radiation-associated cardiac disease, meaning what are the manifestations. And you alluded to this a bit. What about the how? What is a mechanism of action by which radiation damages the heart and its tissues? So, Amit, that's another great question. And I love the questions that we always ask, like, why this happened? Because to be quite frank, like a lot of things in cardio-oncology, 
a lot of it is theoretical and based on animal studies or in vitro studies. But in the end, we don't know exactly why or how these things occur. And most importantly, who is vulnerable. However, you have to go back to the real reason why is ionizing radiation used in cancer treatments, right? The basic objective of this treatment is to essentially kill tumor DNA. And by that, you use its mechanisms of DNA disruption through a variety of mechanisms by causing cell cycle arrest, senescence, as well as apoptosis to decrease tumor growth and to stop its ability to reproduce. However, obviously, radiation field treatments are not perfect, and especially with historical treatments, a lot of other healthy tissues are involved. And some of the major theories that explain why cardiovascular disease can occur with all the ways we just talked about is through direct mechanisms and indirect mechanisms. And the direct mechanisms that some have proposed is endothelial injury, such as the generation of reactive oxygen species, which also can cause oxidative damage that lead to other downstream effects of cell death, which is unfortunately the purpose of ionization radiation, and tissue injury that can lead to vascular changes, including acceleration of atherosclerosis. So if you have a patient who already has pre-existing disease, it may accelerate with parenchymal damage as well as fibrosis, which you might also see in younger cohorts who didn't have pre-existing heart disease. But I will tell you that based off of landmark histopathology studies and radiation disease on postmortem studies done as early in the 1970s and 80s, there really is no histopathological finding of radiation-induced cardiovascular disease because it is essentially an accelerated aging process of any manifestation of heart disease. So you can have manifestations of intimal hyperplasia, kind of almost in the same way you will see bare metal stents leading to hyperplasia in restenosis. You can see almost a similar appearance in radiation-induced cardiovascular disease or evidence of thrombosis from atherosclerotic plaque that was already pre-existing or accelerated atherosclerosis. And this also can be induced by indirect mechanisms, which not surprisingly, radiation also promotes the release of inflammatory cytokines and chemokines, and some definitely known culprits include IL-1-beta, TNF-alpha, TGF-beta, which can also provoke the innate immune response to propagate other precursors or risk factors for atherosclerosis. So overall, all these things, based on the amount of radiation, the techniques, the tissues exposed, it can cause a whole heterogeneous variety of effects. But however, again, I think it's difficult to really gauge the risk of each individual because I think, especially as cardiologists, right, we like to keep things simple. We like to keep things as straightforward as possible. But it's important to understand that radiation treatments are not just one type of treatment. They can occur in different parts of the body, depending on where the cancer is and what kind of cancer and what kind of regimen works the best. And that also, there are multiple historical regimens that change over the decades and also how they protect against toxic effects. So while it's not ideal to just stereotypically just base it off location and dose, this is unfortunately what we have to deal with the limited information we have. But these are some of the things that we want to watch out for, not just within the areas affected by radiation, but on a systemic level, just like atherosclerosis. And we need to find ways to effectively detect and aggressively treat to reduce the long-term risk of cardiovascular events in this vulnerable and special population. Thank you so much, Dr. Yan, for this very interesting overview. So just to make sure I review what you just discussed, 
we are not 100% sure how the theoretical animal studies on the mechanisms translate on humans, but we have seen the fact that radiation can affect the heart directly and indirectly. But the most interesting portion of what you described was the fact that it just causes an accelerated aging process and it leads to progression of pre-existing disease. But you've also mentioned that it can, in younger patients, for example, it cause its own type of disease as well. So all this information is uh, very interesting, and I think that's a lot to take in. Patrick, what do you think Miss Gray is doing with all of this information? Well, she's pretty shocked to hear about all the ways that radiation can affect her heart. She gets this diagnosis of breast cancer, and now she's learning that one of the treatments can cause further complications down the road. So she's wondering if this happens to every patient and what may put someone at greater risk for it. So Dr. Yang, how would you approach discussing the risk of radiation-induced cardiac disease with a patient like Ms. Gray? So Patrick, that is a great question because I think this also ties in the overall importance of how you weigh risk and benefit with theoretical cardiotoxicity in a cardio-oncology practice. And as many of you who are interested in practicing cardio-oncology and Given we are cardiologists and we are obviously cardiocentric, our tendency is to always put the heart first. And I think this brings up a very important impetus to realize that first and foremost, the issue at hand here is the cancer. And the immediate, likely in most malignancy states, is the issue of looking at a treatment that presumably will prolong life or lower the risk of recurrence, depending on the stage, severity, and type of cancer. So when you are posed or being asked to comment on a treatment that has theoretical cardiotoxic manifestations, and this is not just limited to radiation, obviously. We're talking about other treatments like anthracyclines, anti-HER2 treatments, immunotherapy, immune checkpoint inhibitors, CAR-T, etc. The big force picture really is to ask yourself, how do you want to communicate this without necessarily derailing the cancer treatment plan with something that could happen that may not affect this particular patient. And this is going back again to why what I was saying at the beginning of this chat was that a lot of the radiation-induced cardiovascular disease statistics we quote or look at are based on historical data. And in the modern era, in the year 2022, things have changed a lot from a lot of these epidemiologic studies that were formed from the 1960s to the 1990s. And it's important to understand and convey to the patient that you can't really provide an actual number or risk. Her cancer doctors might be able to provide numbers on how the chemo or radiation or surgical treatments will do for her overall long-term prognosis. But these older statistics arguably may not be applicable to her. And it's just important to understand that radiation disease overall can be potentially a risk factor for long-term issues. But to throw in numbers might not be relevant to her, and you do not necessarily want to alarm a patient who needs these treatments, or presumably it's been established that these treatments will be a benefit to her. We know radiation treatments are still used in about 50% of cancers, not just necessarily treatments to the heart. And they still do have, in many cases, survival benefit. But as time has moved on, for instance, in the Hodgkin's lymphoma cohorts, radiation treatment is actually no longer first line. It's just chemotherapy. So same thing with breast cancer now with improved radiation techniques, which we'll get into. Overall, you don't want to use necessarily data that darts back, for instance, like the Darby study in the New England Journal of Medicine, which looked at an old skin and even cohort that said that even with 4.9 grays, there was a linear increase in cardiovascular events with every increase in grays, and that was compounded by risk factors. I think this just emphasizes the need 
that show that it's important to be very aggressive with primary and secondary prevention. Her risk factors, thankfully, mainly just include a family history of cardiovascular disease, but otherwise she seems healthy, she is active, and really the goal is to hopefully continue to promote those practices to reduce the long-term effects of cardiovascular disease. So I know I didn't, unfortunately, give you a satisfying answer about that, but I think it's important to understand that I frame these risks as just a risk factor. Just how you say, if you're counseling a diabetic, well, what is my precise chance of developing heart disease? You can't really give them that number. All you could say is that it's a risk factor. And that long-term, it might be a risk factor for accelerated disease. But that's really, frankly, a moot point if she doesn't get the treatment she needs. And long-term, the malignancy will be the major cause of morbidity mortality. For physicians also who see these patients down the road who have had exposure to radiation, some risk factors in their history that they should consider, including characteristics of the patient, how the radiation was delivered, and characteristics of the tumor itself, could play into their role for considering the diagnosis of RACD. Could you flesh those out a bit more in terms of prior risk factors that would increase one's likelihood of having a complication? Absolutely. When you're looking at patients who are treated in the so-called historical era, and we usually kind of refer that, I mean, there's no probably great you know, timeline for that, but I would say based on epidemiologic studies, you're thinking, you know, before the turn of the 21st century. I know we do see a lot of cancer survivors who were treated as children, especially Hodgkin's lymphoma patients. That is when you can be a little bit more precise with risk assessment and talk about some of the long-term effects and be more aggressive with cardiovascular screening. But some risk factors we look at that might be a red flag for us to be more aggressive in screening are, for instance, if you've received anterior left chest radiation therapy, if the tumor was known to be next to or you know next to the heart, so you presume like older historical radiation techniques were not as precise compared to things like IMRT or proton therapy, and there was just not as much shielding done at the time, or high-dose irradiation treatment fractions, usually that might be defined as more than two grays a day, or a high cumulative RT dose, which I define as radiotherapy, greater than 30 grays, or if you also had cardiovascular risk factors or pre-existing cardiovascular disease. Some other risk factors that you might also consider is if there's also anthracycline exposure on terms of that. You figure that if you have two different therapies that interfere with cardiac metabolism, that's probably going to correlate with higher risk of long-term cardiac dysfunction. And again, you may not necessarily have access to all this clinical data, especially if the patient was treated decades ago. And this is where sometimes referral to a survivorship center may be also important because they can get some of this data, or at least based on their knowledge of historical regimens, they can help you get access to or provide some historical perspective on that. And that might drive your ability to say, when do I need to look for subclinical atherosclerosis or screen more frequently with echocardiography or look for long-term manifestations of disease. And another important teaching point is that when I tell our fellows is that if you hear the term mantle radiation, it's not just the heart. Historical mantle treatments go from the diaphragm to the neck. So also in line with the whole study, you don't want to just look at the cardiovascular system. You want to look at the peripheral arterial system, especially perhaps subclavian, carotid artery disease, and also look for signs of vascular insufficiency, whether it's neurologic, claudication. If it was a lot of lymphoma, you received, if the tumor or infiltrated degree was down below, subdiaphragmatic, or in the abdomen. Radiation treatments can also occur and affect other structures, causing some unusual manifestations, such as peripheral disease or renal artery stenosis. And these are things that, based on a good history, and most adults can remember what they received, at least what areas of their body, that might drive you to look at long-term sequelae in those areas. 
Yeah, I get the feeling that the risk-benefit assessment is getting more and more complicated nowadays as new cancer treatments emerge, which is very interesting. And it also emphasizes the importance of discussing with our colleagues. You were telling us that um, the radiation oncology physicians now have techniques to decrease the cardiac exposure to radiation. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. And I think I myself am obviously not a radiation oncologist, but there are active techniques that radiation oncologists are more proactive in doing to decrease exposure to the heart. Some simple things that have been done in practice include, for instance, breast cancer patients who are getting left-sided radiation include a breath hold technique. Because when you take a breath hold, your chest wall expands and increases the distance between the chest wall and to your heart. So presumably the radiation fields and the scatter will affect the heart less. Also prone imaging will do the same thing. Will the breast will be physically through gravity be a longer distance from that of the heart. And there's also some other modern radiation techniques, including IMRT, which essentially use computerized algorithms to modulate radiation doses to lower or minimize doses to the heart structures and also other modern techniques such as proton therapy as well that can also theoretically reduce this. But we unfortunately don't have as much prospective data on some of the more modern radiation techniques. And subsequently, I think that's why it's important to collaborate with our radiation oncologists to have robust, at least registry perspective data to see how these patients do, especially in prognostically favorable malignancies. But overall, it can be assumed that definitely these manifestations will hopefully decrease over time. And also, like many malignancies such as Hodgkin's disease may not require upfront radiation treatments. I love how the heart team approach is mandatory here. And I feel like this again emphasizes the importance of dedicated cardio-oncology expertise. We do need the help of our colleagues, but there are also a few measures that we as cardiologists can make for primary prevention. Correct, Tio. When someone is referred for chest radiation therapy, like Ms. Gray, they should undergo a pre-radiation screening for cardiac disease and cardiac risk factors. So I would start with a thorough physical exam, an EKG, and an echo. And of course, just assessing their symptoms, seeing if they have any chest pain, shortness of breath, the things you would usually do when someone comes to the cardiology clinic. But it's really essential that we optimize these modifiable risk factors, such as hyperlipidemia, hypertension, smoking and diabetes, because these risk factors can really compound any complications that may arise from radiation-associated cardiac disease. So we need to treat these pre-existing cardiac disease and make sure that we're aware of pertinent comorbidities that would involve changing management, such as radiotherapy dose minimization to specific cardiac structures, including pacemakers. Thanks for that, Patrick. Yeah, I think being proactive is so important here. Dr. Yang, do you have any additional thoughts regarding this approach? And how, if at all, would you factor in her family history of premature CAD? So that is a great question because we really don't have a robust evidence-based approach for the, I guess you could say, the pre-workup, the cardio-oncology pre-workup of someone about to go chest radiation therapy. By all means, every patient should undergo traditional ASCVD risk assessment. But I will say family history certainly poses a risk factor, making sure based off her lipid profile and other risk factors such as hypertension, smoking, and diabetes, those obviously should be identified and optimized. And an important thing that historically used to be the issue was that cancer patients, once they had a diagnosis of cancer, including breast cancer, the original traditional dialogue with the patient was saying, you have cancer, this is serious, the chemo, the treatments are going to make you sick. 
take it easy, don't exercise, eat whatever you want to keep your weight up, et cetera, et cetera, right? That paradigm, thankfully, has started to change because number one, at least in this and Mrs. Gray's situation, breast cancer stage three or below in general is an overall survivable prognosis. In fact, some of my breast oncologists basically tell me that stage three or below is considered a curable disease. So the big question, and this is a contingent upon us as cardiologists to emphasize for breast oncologists and the patient is, why should you throw your cardiovascular and preventative care to the wind when we know that most women will live very long or survive their disease? And we also know that there is evidence that women with poor cardiovascular reserve, with poor exercise tolerance post-treatments, even if they survive their disease, they're more likely to do poorly and have more cardiovascular event rates. So above all else, counseling about a healthy lifestyle and maintaining as much normalcy as possible, being sensitive to the fact that they won't feel well during their treatments, depending on what they get, whether it's chemotherapy, radiation, it's still to try to emphasize and promote an active lifestyle as best you can. And that is also something there's the, the most robust data in exercise is actually done in the breast cancer population because of its prognostically favorable nature. So I would say that with what Patrick cited is very appropriate. I will go up on a limb to say that if the patient's not getting anthracyclines or adjuvant chemotherapy or anti-HER2 treatments, the echo by itself might be a little iffy, but I probably would, my practice probably ordered as well for radiation treatment. Because again, this is not the same as the historical Hodgkin's mantle radiation type radiation. This is more along the lines of the breast cancer cohorts are probably more likely to be at risk for CAD, assuming that we can extrapolate the old data of radiation treatments. And an echo obviously can't necessarily parse that out, but it's not unreasonable to do. But if you're going to get adjuvant treatments, you're probably going to get cardiac imaging on top of that. But I will say breast cancer radiation patients get something unique that give you an unprecedented look into the heart that most cardiologists never would get. And what is that? The CT of the breast, right? Especially if you're going to get radiation because they're going to get that for their planning. And it's, I think, very important that any cardiologist or cardio-oncologist use that. That is free data looking for the evidence of subclinical pre-existing atherosclerotic plaque based on this woman's history. Does her family history predispose her to premature coronary disease? I don't know. But if you have a CT, yes, it's not ECG-gated. Yes, it's not actually a cardiac CT ECG-gated protocol. But if you see already evidence of subclinical atherosclerosis, you already have some degree of information that this person probably is, if she's not on a statin already, she should probably be on one. And whether or not that will mitigate the effects long-term of radiation therapy have yet to be noticed, but you want to do that to be able to decrease their long-term risks. And we already have data that suggests that if you survive 10 years of breast cancer above the age of 65, you're probably more likely to die of heart disease than recurrent breast cancer. So that's data that you can use. And if you have the fortune of seeing your radiation oncology notes, they usually will provide radiation proposed fields. Although, to be honest with you, I'm not smart enough to know whether or not that will correlate based on what their iso-dosing radiation fields will show. You get an idea anatomically of what you know will be involved in their treatments. But above all else, they will all get pre-planning imaging, and you should independently look at those studies to see whether or not there's already subclinical evidence of disease that you should be on top of treating. I really love the idea that we should discuss with the oncologists to understand what the modern prognosis is for our patients so that we can continue to emphasize cardiovascular prevention, which usually takes a longer lifespan to show its survival benefits. You've mentioned statins. Are there any other specific treatments we can use for primary prevention of radiation-associated cardiac disease? 
So Gio, that's a great question. And I wish we had a magic bullet for priming prevention methods. But unfortunately, we have no randomized controlled trials looking at the benefits of statins or antiplatelet therapies, or unfortunately anything for that matter, because I think we still don't really quite understand the timeline of radiation-associated cardiovascular disease. And not only that, I think a big confounding issue is the ongoing changes in treatment strategies and the way the malignancies in general are treated. So I would say really the only quote-unquote primary prevention way is really some of the techniques we discussed to reduce radiation exposure. So the best way is to minimize exposure as a whole. Although you and I probably would use statins if we found evidence of radiation and associate our pre-existing CVD. No one's ever really actually studied that in a rigorous fashion, whether or not that actually benefits patients. There is animal studies and in vitro studies that do suggest that there is maybe a cardioprotective effect, but like many animal studies, that has to be translated into the larger population to show. Likewise, statin use as primary prevention in the dialysis population did unfortunately not show a significant benefit reducing events. And, you know, we need to see if similar things may or may not occur in the radiation population as well. It sounds like the lack of data is a tremendous opportunity for those interested in clinical research and passionate about patients with cancer or history of cancer. So Ms. Gray completes her pre-radiation screening and is started on a statin. She is super thankful for our proactive preventive counseling and efforts. But now she's wondering about the next steps. Since she's about to start radiotherapy, she asks, what is the plan in regards to cardiac surveillance? How should we follow her up, Dr. Yang? So thankfully, Mrs. Gray seems overall free of risk factors, and she probably fits the profile of a variety of breast cancer patients. And I would say, really, this is assuming she's received no adjuvant treatments that are cardiotoxic. And again, we are unfortunately not sure how often radiation disease will rear its head in the modern treatment era. And I think with that in mind, my main concern with her, if there is a concern, would be consideration of accelerated atherosclerosis, which again, it's a borderline call. We were part of a SKY consensus document, Society of Cardiovascular Angiography and Interventions, a few years back, about looking at, from the data that we had, how often should a cancer survivor who has received radiation be screened for cardiotoxic sequelae. And again, in the modern era, in a patient for breast cancer, I think the main problem here is not so much valve disease, that can occur later with just aging, but again, it's more along the lines of atherosclerosis, assuming that territories such as left anterior descending artery to the left breast were affected. So in a sense, you already have a baseline calcium score. It's a bit rudimentary, but you have it in the patient when she got her CT breast. And there is some suggestion that you can do a screening echo every five years after, or particularly if they also have additional risk factors, which you could arguably say she does with a family history of coronary disease. And probably wouldn't be unreasonable that many calcium score experts already do is to repeat it five years from treatment, especially if it will affect how aggressive you use statin LDL lower therapies. I know calcium scoring in many circles is controversial because of its questionable long-term impact on lowering cardiovascular endpoints, but I would also make the argument that at least within the radiation population, 
we probably have good evidence to say that traditional risk assessment, including using tools such as the pool cohort equation, have not been validated in this population. And there are some recent data to suggest that these patients who have received radiation of a variety of malignancies are at higher risk, both with historical data and with new data as well. So I probably would, with her, be inclined to not necessarily order echocardiography unless she also received chemotherapy, but I would probably be more aggressive in considering calcium scoring if it was going to change my management or her ability or willingness to be more aggressive with LDL-lowering therapies to make sure more aggressive atherosclerosis is not developed as well. And this is also obviously assuming she is asymptomatic. Right. And Dr. Yang, can you comment on why the follow-up for these patients can be over such a long period of time? For example, why some recommend a screening echo over five years or even up to 10 years? So a lot of these stem from, again, looking at historical trends of when radiation disease starts to develop. And as I alluded to back with some of the more older studies, such as the whole data in JAMA, the, the median onset was approximately 17 years in the Hodgkin's lymphoma cohort. And if you look at the Darby study, New England Journal of Medicine, this wasn't so much heart failure. It was actually looking at cardiovascular event rates. And also it was based off a much older Scandinavian population from the 1960s to the early 2000s. And therefore, it was also based off chart review of left-sided radiation showing an increase, an uptick in radiation based on radiation exposure. So there are a lot of limitations, unfortunately, to this, mainly relating to the fact that these are just older treatments and arguably outdated treatments, that the patients nowadays get less toxic exposure, less aggressive treatments, because we know that these are just as effective, if not more, without causing much of the cardiovascular sequelae. So for us, the five-year interval is admittedly a bit arbitrary, because right five to 10 and everything in life is just easier to just say. But I would say that if we just want to start looking for evidence, we're looking for a couple things. One, you want to look for evidence of valvular dysfunction, which again, really pertains more to, again, the Hodgkin's lymphoma, the more mantle radiation aggressive cohort, and maybe some of the older breast cancer radiation regimens. But nowadays, it's probably less likely that that's going to be the issue. And as I alluded to before, an echo does not diagnose coronary artery disease. It might diagnose an indirect form of it, such as if you have enough severe coronary artery disease that can lead to ischemic cardiomyopathy. But that's something you could probably obtain based on history and how they feel, how they look. But for the most part, again, your goal is, at least in the breast cancer population, in my mind, is to look for evidence of you know atherosclerosis. And also the important thing to emphasize is that obviously this is an era that there's more of an emphasis now on medical therapy for stable coronary artery disease, right? People who are minimally symptomatic or have stable symptoms, there's no proven benefit to doing invasive treatments. Although one could argue, well, we don't know what it's like for radiation, CBD, they might be higher risk, which may or may not be true, but we do need data to suggest that. So five years is really more of a good space to look for interim development of disease. However, I will say that if you have developed suspected radiation-induced valvular disease, whether it's mild, moderate, eric stenosis, for instance, or mitral regurgitation or mitral stenosis, I would probably be more aggressive and check yearly imaging to make sure there's no rapid progression. So for Ms. Gray, we're going to discharge her from clinic. When would you want to see her again? In a year or in five years? 
I think we're very fortunate at UCLA that we are a tertiary referral center, but we also serve the huge swath of Southern California and beyond. So a lot of patients who are here may come for cancer tertiary referral care, but they also live in the area and thus they want to continue their care continuity and long-term. So one of the rewarding parts is to follow not only just cardiovascular patients, but cancer patients out and to look for evidence in longitudinal for to follow and see how they're doing. And frankly, just to assess whether I'm doing the right thing for my patients as well. For these patients, again, I view her still as a primary prevention patient. So from my end, I would be inclined to see her on a yearly basis and check as guidelines indicate, intermittent lipid assessment, assessment of her risk factors, uh, her lifestyle modifications. Thankfully, she is at the outset not I guess you would say complicated and really just checking in to make sure she's okay. But also at the same time, I think within the field of cardio-oncology, because there's so much rapid data, I do want to follow these patients long-term because there might be something that just comes in the literature to say, well, this kind of testing or this kind of treatment might be beneficial. And I think if you discharge them, you may not be able to get them back for whatever the reason and be able to tell them about these things. And I think in general, it's helpful to always follow people with some degree of cardiovascular risk factors and disease if your panel or time allows for it. But I think with cardio-oncology, to me, it's very rewarding to not only take care for people who have suffered cardiotoxicity, but also to look at people who are at risk or look at prevention, especially since they've been able to survive their cancer and you want to make sure that they don't have the long-term cardiovascular sequelae. So for me, again, if no symptoms, yearly follow-up is very reasonable from that standpoint. I agree. I think yearly follow-up makes the most sense because five years may not seem like a lot of time, but in the field of cardiology, that is such a vast period where so many new discoveries can occur. And if you don't see your patient in five years, you could miss an opportunity to apply a new therapy or practice that was developed in that time. Right, exactly. And I can't name one patient who was able to schedule a clinic in five years and keep that appointment, although I've never done that, obviously. But, you know, I don't know how many people plan that far ahead. And I think also, honestly, it's just to keep patients plugged in. That's, I think that's the important aspect. Exactly. Yeah. If not, you'll have to set a reminder on your iPhone. <laughs> well, Miss Gray leaves clinic. She otherwise follows up as planned annually. She does complete treatment for her breast cancer and she has no recurrence. And five years pass. So we'll fast forward five years. And when you see her again in clinic, she reports that over the past year, she does have a new symptom. She says that she hasn't been able to run as much as she used to the year before. She's getting short of breath after walking just a mile. And for these symptoms, we're concerned. So we get an echo and the echo comes back abnormal. It shows mild to moderate aortic stenosis. And to look for any sort of ischemia or coronary artery disease, a coronary CTA is ordered, which we discussed earlier. And this coronary CTA, it shows severe stenosis in the LED. She's referred for coronary angiography, which further reveals 40% stenosis of the left main, confirms the 90% stenosis of the mid-LED, and otherwise mild, diffuse, non-obstructive atherosclerotic disease. So unfortunately, Ms. Gray does have some new cardiac complications, likely from the radiation. How would you approach treatment of her coronary artery disease in this patient, Dr. Yang? So for one thing, I'm thinking to myself, man, that was an aggressive radiation protocol that she underwent. But I will say that even in the time I've practiced, sometimes people don't seem on the surface to get high doses. But sometimes, for whatever reason, people can have very dramatic manifestations within several years. And I think 
While breast cancer radiation, the regimens and the treatment strategies tend to make this less likely, you presumably have, assuming she had normal imaging before and the normal exam, that you have rapid acceleration of moderate stenosis and she is more symptomatic. And the one thing which obviously shows a borderline intermediate lesion of the left main, which obviously when you hear left main, everyone gets quite concerned, and also the mid-LAD. So I think the one thing that you have to also worry about in the radiation patient is, or ask yourself, is how truly symptomatic is she or is the symptoms she's having, are they potentially blunted and she actually could be more symptomatic than she appears? Because historically, people who've had thoracic radiation, this is another thing that they're almost viewed in a sense like diabetics, they can have a lot of sign of ischemia. And we know from historical data that Hodgkin's and breast cancer patients are at higher risk of sudden death. Now, that might be less so now in the modern era with better medical therapy, but that's the one thing we always worry about, that their symptoms or their ability of their heart to warn them of ongoing angina might be indicative of the higher risk of event rates. That being said, Obviously, there is more of a public perspective as well as cardiovascular push to treat stable disease as stable, right? And have trials such as ischemia encouraged specifically studied radiation-induced coronary disease? No, right? But at the same time, we also don't know necessarily if aggressive revascularization will help these people. I would say several years ago, we would be more aggressive, but nowadays the question then becomes, should we be more aggressive with medical therapy? And really at this point, based off of at least a non-invasive coronary study, and again, we haven't really gotten into details of what kind of plaque are we seeing, right? Is it soft plaque? Is it mixed plaque? Potential unstable plaque? The question then becomes, well, what's her risk of doing poorly? And I think it wouldn't be unreasonable after this to risk stratify her because she is active and she is symptomatic just to see what she might do on a treadmill and or echo to see and maybe consider revascularization if she develops high-risk features because she might have a blunted response symptomatically, but what if she gets hypotensive or has ventricular arrhythmias or has severe ST depressions with a multitude of wall motion abnormalities that occur with exercise that correlates with a high yearly event rate afterwards? then that might push to be more aggressive on top of medical therapy. But with one vessel disease, and of course, I would obviously study the left main more carefully if you were to invasively study her. We just don't know really, again, the overall ACS risk, essentially, of, I think, the modern radiation-induced survivorship standpoint. So I would still approach someone with stable symptoms with aggressive medical therapy and consider, again, revascularization as per guidelines. And this is what we say in some of our expert consensus statements. We try to adhere to ACCHA, Cardiovascular Society guidelines, until we have more data from that standpoint. Dr. Yang, if I may ask a follow-up question on a related topic that I think about sometimes from an interventional perspective, maybe not for her anatomy, but say she came back and she had significant left main stenosis, or say she had developed severe aortic stenosis, maybe you know a few years even more out. Now, sternotomy, open-heart surgery in patients with a prior radiation, chest radiation is high risk to begin with, and redo sternotomy in a patient with prior radiation is even more high risk. So what are your thoughts about favoring, especially when the patient, at this point, she's, I think, 45 years old, if I've done my math right, favoring percutaneous options in the beginning to almost like reserve or preserve the chest down the road when maybe they've developed polyvalvular disease, a more complex coronary disease? Yeah, I, I think that's a really great question. And again, I'm going to just 
moving forward, just talk about radiation survivors as just this over an overall entity. I don't want to just necessarily talk specifically about breast cancer, just Hodgkin's lymphoma. I think that when you are dealing with a patient who comes in with sequelae of cardiovascular disease, and I think, again, one of the most concerning things is obviously left main involvement, I would say that still this requires a personalized approach because like you bring up, Amit, the issue of age, younger patients that otherwise have surgical disease, the question is, do you go percutaneous or surgical, right? And obviously, there is a big question of durability of transcatheter and or stents, no matter how good they are with newer generation stent profiles and scaffolds and whatnot. But if you're offering this in a young individual, what's the best approach? And to me, I think, again, this is also what's the most fascinating part of this field is you also have to look at what else in the body is affected that could affect surgical risk, right? So going back to the historical cohorts of mean-style radiation, what else did they come with? Well, they came with porcelain aortas, which will be a very big problem if you try to cross-clamp an aorta dealing with your stroke risk. You're going to put someone on bypass. Or if they have severe radiation pulmonary fibrosis, which will make their ventilation status and their ability to extubate a real big problem, right? And usually, I think a multidisciplinary interventional and surgical approach is always ideal to kind of balance these issues. But I would say, and I can tell you from personal experience, that I've referred patients of radiation valve disease or CAD to both surgery and percutaneous approaches because it really ultimately in the end depends on how well there are other factors that contribute to the SCS score that also contribute frailty. These are other things that need to be put into account. And if you have someone, let's say this woman like Miss Gray, let's just say if she has no other issues, like she doesn't have a highly calcified aorta and she doesn't have any evidence of Lima disease with radiation, right? That's another thing you want to check, although with breast cancer, that's probably less likely. Still, at least looking at the diabetic data, looking at freedom and other things, Lima longevity is still superior to that. And if someone's young, you want the longest longevity, you could offer valve surgery in the cabbage. That being said, if you have another person who unfortunately is so debilitated from the treatments that they barely do anything, and they have also poor pulmonary reserve from radiation fibrosis, and they have long-term atherosclerotic peripheral arterial disease, then a percutaneous approach may be more reasonable, whether it be PCI or TAVR. And we've had patients that have undergone a combination of these things. And ultimately, and again, like many things, it's a shared decision-making to, one, make the patient aware of what we don't know, like the long-term effects of radiation treatment necessarily, or how long, what this means for the longevity of prosthetic valves, whether it's transcatheter or surgical, as well as the long-term effects of PCI. And we just don't have that kind of granular data yet to show, let's say, how do drug eluting stents fare in long-term PCI results, right? We do know that in general, in the cancer population, PCI trends are going up because I think that reflects just a more chronic cancer disease population. But how long do they really fare? And I think, again, you really have to weigh it with, again, youth, prognosis of how they will do overall, and quality of life issues. And if you're going to put me on the spot right now, if this woman, let's say, had multivessel disease and she was still otherwise very healthy and there was no other evidence of radiation sequelae elsewhere, I personally think surgery would not be an unreasonable option to offer her because we know the surgical data is more long-term. I know your institution definitely has studied this at length in terms of looking at that. But if you had someone with a higher SDS score, other comorbidities of chronic lung disease from radiation, then I would probably go a less invasive route. So this is where it comes to really a little bit of the art of cardio-oncology, but also applying the principles and evidence you know from general cardiology to provide the best care possible for the patient. And I hope that kind of answers your question about that.
You know, it really does. Thanks, Dr. Yang. I mean, these clearly are, are challenging scenarios and uh, getting, I think, input from everyone involved can be really helpful for personalizing a patient's approach. Wonderful conversation on this clinical dilemma. I did want to add one more thing. Some of the cases we've studied together with Dr. Eliasco at MD Anderson, and I think some of them are even published. Dr. Eliasco has found that there is a higher risk of instant restenosis in patients who had radiation treatments in the past. So the minimally invasive, so to speak, approach might bring its own challenges in this patient population. I just think it's a very interesting and very complex process to decide how to treat the patients. Yeah, absolutely. And Cesar definitely is really one of the gurus interventional and to be able to establish a cath lab in a primary cancer center is no easy feat. And for him to also do that and also to be able to study and help patients who obviously do not have a pretty high rate of cardiovascular issues in a place like MD Anderson is really just an amazing opportunity to look at cancer biology and treatments and how they affect patients with coronary disease. And a lot of what I say, frankly, also comes from his experience and also his collaborations to look at these patients long-term. So again, there's just a lot of avenues that our trainees and people interested in the field can really just explore. There's just a lot of low-hanging fruit. And at UCLA, I will tell you, I get my best ideas from the trainees because I just say, ask any question. Like anything you see on the cancer wards or in clinic, chances are, especially within cardio-oncology, there's no good answer. And it's really up to the next generation and the opportunities you all have to have access to these patients, to have some sort of foundation to explore these people uh, to kind of understand all the pathophysiology because there's, you know, there's so many different iterations of cancer. Uh, there's so many iterations of cancer treatment algorithms. And also, as you all know, the cancer drug development is just going on a tidal wave, right? As cardiologists, we all think to ourselves, oh yeah, we're badass. We do everything here. But the cancer pharmaceutical treatment line, no other field medicine holds account to that. There's just treatments coming out in clinical trials and FDA approvals by the day with all these unclear cardiovascular effects. And I think, again, that's what makes the field so dynamic and exciting, but also daunting. And we have to keep on top of that to be able to anticipate and treat the cardiovascular toxicities or the pre-existing risk factors and disease states they have to be able to ensure that they can get through their treatments. So I did briefly, very briefly want to bring up another important clinical scenario, radiation-induced cardiac disease in childhood cancer survivors. Are there any management or follow-up particularities in this patient population? In many cardio-oncology programs, you see that manifested by some of the leukemia and lymphoma populations with the historical treatment regimens. And this is, again, where I think the statistics of high cardiovascular event rates can apply. And it's important if you see someone that shows up in your clinic who was treated as a child or as a youth or as a teenager or whatnot before the age of 20, let's just say. Again, a survivorship program can also help you get treatment regimens if the patient doesn't have it themselves. But you can assume based off of certain kinds of disease states, what kinds of treatments they may have received and what they are at risk for. And really, I think to me, in the childhood population, the childhood cancer survivor population, the two major high-risk treatment modalities you have to be cognizant of are whether the patient was exposed to anthracyclines. Now, with the high, you know, with the high-risk cutoff of uh, greater than 240 milligrams per meter squared, although like many people, I do not believe that there is a quote-unquote safe dose, and or the combination of chest radiation. And a combination of any of these treatments at any doses constitutes technically high risk. And then becomes the next difficult question of saying, well, how often should they be screened for cardiovascular sequelae? 
And because radiation treatment is combined sometimes with anthracycline treatments, you're also screening for cardiac dysfunction or LV dysfunction, right? So at that point, you're probably already going to install a more frequent cardiac screening protocol of cardiac disease looking for cardiomyopathy. And there was a document that came out known as the International Harmonization of Guidelines that was helmed by Saro Minion of City of Hope a few years back, which basically tried to put all the congruous and also discrepancies of all these cancer societies to try to come to an overall agreement of who should be screened, who should be looked at. And overall, the decision was made that at least a consensus was decided upon that if you have exceeded this high-risk cutoff of anthracyclines without radiation, I know I'm getting a little off topic here, but you know that by itself should warrant long-term screening. How often we should be looking, we don't really know, okay? But if you had radiation exposure with the cutoffs that I discussed by itself, it is also not unreasonable to screen long-term for cardiovascular sequelae, whether it be cardiac dysfunction, valvular disease, et cetera, et cetera. But if you have a combination of any of these two things, you should definitely screen within a year or two after treatment, but also long-term. And they use intervals about five years, but they also said it was reasonable to escalate surveillance intervals if you felt that they were at higher risk. Another important population that is indirectly tied to this TO, that radiation by itself may not play a role in cardiotoxicity, but anthracyclines are, is the female of childbearing age, right? We frankly don't have that good data, although there is some epidemiologic data looking at smaller populations of women who have received cardiotoxic therapies that choose to be pregnant. It's important that they also visit with a cardiovascular specialist or a cardio-oncology specialist on top of a cardio-obstetric specialist, which is also obviously a very important rise field for also appropriate screening of cardiac dysfunction and also postpartum to look for immediate sequelae as well to ensure that any sign of cardiac dysfunction is also treated appropriately to lower long-term cardiovascular effects as well. So I hope that answers your question. Yes, that was a very comprehensive review. Thank you so much for going over that. So Dr. Yang, it's time for our final question of the night. It's our favorite podcast question. And we always like to ask this to all our guests. So what makes your heart flutter about cardio-oncology? Well, I would say cardio-oncology certainly makes my heart flutter, sometimes more out of stress, but also out of really a sense of joy and reward because as counterintuitive as it sounds, the unknown aspect of the field is really what drew me to it. And when I came on faculty here at UCLA just over a decade ago now, cardio-oncology was not on my radar. Most people did not know what it was. And I frankly had a strong dislike for cancer during my training. I trained in a county facility. So many patients unfortunately came late stage, which there was not much to do. And by pure chance, I was approached by the Livestrong Cancer Survivorship led by Dr. Patricia Gans, who some of you may know as a huge breast cancer survivorship guru who introduced the concept of survivorship in the 1980s when there wasn't even a thought about how these patients should be addressed and cared for in the long-term treatment era post-treatment when, in general, longevity and prognosis was so much worse back then. And also Dr. Jacqueline Casillas of the pediatrics component of the survivorship. And they just asked if I would start seeing some of their cancer survivors. And when I was younger and not as busy and just looking for things to do. I was like, sure, I'll start seeing some of these people. And many of them were, interestingly, radiation survivors with a whole hodgepodge 
of chronic complaints that had been going on for years, whether it was tachycardias, chest pain, cardiac dysfunction. And it was just so fascinating. But at the same time, we had no idea what to do for these patients. And something just clicked for me, just said, you know, this is incredibly interesting. And we don't know, just with all the heterogeneous spectrum of cancers and treatments, why do these patients have these problems? And I think many cardio-oncologists, you know, my colleagues are driven to push the field in a very similar way because there's just so much we don't know. But yet at the same time, cancer is the second cause of death of men and women. But yet at the same time, we're going to have likely over at least 20 million cancer survivors in the US by the next decade. And that might even go up more with all the advancements and treatments. And therefore, this is something where this is one of the most psychologically terrifying moments for these kinds of patients. And to, for them to have a cardiac issue, either that's acquired or pre-existing that might put them at risk, the ability to attack these unknown issues and to apply the principles of cardiology the best you can. And also the reward is the intimate multidisciplinary discussions you have with the patient, the family, all the other multidisciplinary team members. You learn so much about not only just cardiovascular disease, but also what cancer and the impact it has on their lives. But if you are able to carry them and attenuate their cardiotoxicity risks and cardiovascular issues, not only can you treat the cardiovascular disease, you can get them through two disease processes. And really, that is one of the most rewarding things I can see. And even in a very advanced, sadly advanced stage, or even from a palliative standpoint, we have been able to keep people with advanced stage four disease, even in hospice, out of the hospital, keeping them out of heart failure, keeping their arrhythmias under control. And that is still a huge win, even if when we lose these patients, knowing that you can do that for them to help their quality of life long-term and short-term is really just one of the best things about this field. And all the intellectual discovery, it's such a fast-moving field. And also, it's exciting to see my mentees, also trainees embrace the field, not just cardiology-bound trainees, but hemoc-bound trainees as well. That's just a really exciting thing to witness. And again, it all comes down to, again, tackling the unknown, which you probably have all realized is a common theme, even with something as quote-unquote simple as Miss Gray's situation. There's a lot we don't know, and there's plenty of aspects of even her scenario that one can study and tackle at all levels. And that's what makes my heart flutter about cardiology. Dr. Yang, thank you so much for nerding out with us tonight and for sharing your passion to care for these complicated patients with us. You've really helped us understand the cardiac and vascular complications of radiotherapy. And I will say we're thrilled we had you join us for tonight's episode. And for everyone else, I did want to give you a heads up that we have many other cardio-oncology topics we've tackled and some that we're still planning to discuss. So please stay tuned. Tio, Amit, and Patrick, the honor and privilege was mine. And I'm excited to see that you will be hosting many more sessions and there will be many subjects and topics, as I'm sure you'll know, that will be worth discussing and would be happy to have our trainees as well as myself and colleagues to come back again. And again, thank you for this amazing opportunity again, and thank you for having me. Awesome. Yeah, thanks, Dr. Yang. I'm glad we were able to come back to this and revisit it. I think it's a special topic and highlighting it again, I think will be really helpful for a lot of people. Absolutely. Thanks again, Patrick.